Welcome to the Literacy Fellows Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gabriel. This is the third episode of Series 2, which is focused on emerging questions about online teaching and learning. And we're moving into the topic that so many of you have been waiting for, assessment. Whether, when, why, and how to do reading and writing assessments online. We have a series of guests here that I invited because they are professionals who have thought deeply about the nature, consequences, and uses of assessments across contexts. They do not have all the answers, but they can certainly help us ask the right questions as we make decisions about assessment this spring and next fall. The first uh, person that's here with us today is Dr. Josh Akasella-Stallerman, and he is a psychologist, and he's an expert in among other things, using assessment to do good things in the world field. His depth of knowledge and experience in this area blows right past expertise and straight into wisdom and insight and innovation. I learned things I didn't know I even needed to learn every time I talked to him. So I'm excited to be able to share our conversation with you today. Let's meet Josh. My name is Josh Akasella Stallerman. I'm a psychologist uh, who works for Franklin Academy, um, which is a boarding school in East Haddam, Connecticut, for individuals with unique learning profiles, including um, nonverbal learning disabilities, autism spectrum disorders, um, ADHD learning disabilities, um, and so forth and so on. Uh, I coordinate the evaluation center, so I do the educational and psychological testing uh, for many of our students, um, as well as provide counseling and uh, a multitude of other kind of um, ancillary tasks that uh, need to be done. Nice. Wear many, many hats. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just read that the picture book Cats for Sale again recently. Mm -hmm. It's time a very long time. So I have a nice image of you with like many, many, many cats. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not just me. Um, I've been there eight years now. Um, and uh, so I'm comfortable there now. But it was a big transition from uh, kind of typical outpatient settings um, to a, a boarding high school. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really a kind of shock to the system and, and took some adjustment, but I, I love it and uh, love the students, love the faculty, love the program. Um, it's, it's just a different world. So Josh, when you think about doing any kind of assessment online that used to be done in person, what are some things that come to your mind as considerations uh, or even concerns? Sure. Um, I guess, you know, first, um, I was trained at a, a very ethically and, and law focused um, program for my internship and postdoc. So uh, obviously, the, the, the first thing is, does the platform you're using um, align with, you know, legal and ethical um, uh, standards such as HIPAA, you know, um, but also making sure that the 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 people you're you're testing um, 
know that it's possible that these companies will use your information, not identifying information, but your scores and uh, demographic information for their own um, purposes. Mm -hmm. um, because all the scoring and, and um, uh, kind of demographic information also gets entered online. It's not just the physical assessment for it to be scored. You need an age, you need a gender, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that these testing companies might be using your information, um, which may or may not be a big deal to, to a lot of people, but, um, you know, just keeping that in mind that um, confidentiality kind of changes. And I think, you know, if you're going to go with, with two options, then you, you kind of need two sets of norms, the, the mm -hmm. digital norm and then the kind of analog in person. It also raises the, the question that um, I've been hearing a lot about tests that are, are usually given online. A lot of private test monitoring tools people use for reading in elementary school are computer-based tests, but the companies are not allowing schools to give them at home because they aren't uh, proctored in the same way or might be given on a different kind of device. Um, and that is sort of surprising and in one way surprising because you think, oh, this is already something we know how to do digitally. How convenient mm -hmm. now that everything is digital uh, and it's the one thing that you aren't allowed to do. But it also makes sense based on what you're saying that the, the sort of assumptions and promises that testing companies uh, rely on um, don't hold when any any part of their usually controlled environment goes away. Yeah, and and just you know, with the experience of this kind of online distance learning, um, you can't control the environment. In our classes and in our meetings, I've seen parents in the background. I've seen siblings in the background. Um, even if you can't uh, see them, sometimes you can hear them if they're in another room, and so. Mm -hmm. Controlling uh, an at-home environment is very difficult um, in terms of, you know, limiting distractions and, and helping the, the individual stay focused on the, the task at hand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and in addition to that, there are, there are some very legitimate legal and, and copyright concerns. You know, what's to keep one student from taking a screenshot or even a picture of their, uh, you know, assessment, you know, via the phone, and then it's on the internet, and then that test becomes public knowledge. Mm. Um, and so, how do you um, keep that from happening? Yeah. Keep the the test materials from being um, publicized. Yep, I hadn't thought about that. That's a great point. Um, one of the episodes in our first series about how to do tutoring and intervention online, um, they were talking about having parents in the background is, um, has sort of like a hidden benefit of parents hearing some of the cues and the focus of the session so that they can reinforce it later on. Right. Um, and so it's the same idea of using them as an informant, you're using them as your eyes and ears to get at anything that you might be missing just because of the way the cameras are working. For me, the key would be, you know, even if we're, we're doing it online, the first, you know, step for me would be rapport building, developing some sort of comfort between the student and myself so that, um, you know, not only do they feel 
comfortable, you know, doing this thing with me, but that, you know, they have a chance to ask questions, that they're well informed of what we're doing and why we're doing it, um, how the information is going to be used, how it's going to be helpful, uh, and so forth and so on. So I think that that's still an important piece that even though you might not have the intimacy of an in-person, um, you know, session, that you still need to take that time and to develop that comfort, um, especially if it's not something they're they're used to. If you know all of their academics are done in, in the classroom, um, yet uh, an assessment on their academic functioning is being done online, you want them to be um, kind of comfortable using the technology and interacting online um, before you get into the actual assessment itself. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, I would want to have a pretty um, good understanding of what, what the um, testing question is. Yeah. Am I just doing kind of a, an exploratory, exploratory assessment to see, um, you know, in general, how, how the student is doing, or is there a specific question um, that I'm, I'm trying to uh, explore? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that worries me about online assessment is the availability and flexibility um, to go in other directions if you need to. So if you're trying to answer a question and instead of answering it with your first assessment, uh, your first assessment raises more questions, do you have the flexibility to explore those questions with additional assessments, um, additional questions? So I think having a really solid testing question, what is it we're looking at and anticipating, okay, based on that, what else, what other possible directions might I want to go in based on how they do, you know, in the first assessment or two? And do I have the flexibility to do that online? Mm -hmm. But also, I really like how you're framing this as the the testing question, which is funny because usually tests ask the questions, but they <laughs> they also are supposed to answer a question for us. And so, like, what question do you hope to answer about the student or anything else based on the test? And I think often, especially whole class assessments, are more an assessment of the teaching than they are of the student. Like. Mm -hmm. Um, and if that's the case, um, teaching has changed significantly uh, yeah. <laughs> online. And a lot of it is, um, I, um, well, I guess can't speak for every context, but in many cases, um, students are doing more learning independently. And so mm, are the same kinds of tests that you might have given before at the same time intervals really answering questions that are reasonable to ask at this time? Uh, have they been exposed to the kind of experiences and, instru and instruction that uh, you would have expected um, in a different six-week period? We can certainly still design learning experiences, but when it comes to measuring the impact of those learning experiences, there's a lot we can't account for. Right. And so it makes me wonder, like, under what circumstances would you still want to measure? Right. And, and that, I think, is a very 
complex and nuanced question. You know, assessments are, like I said, a tool. Um, it's also fair to say that assessments are a business. You know, there are large companies that that make these assessments that, you know, charge an arm and a leg for their kits and then for protocols. And, um, and that doesn't mean that they are the best. Now they are standardized and, and legally, um, you know, you, you have to use them. Um, but that doesn't mean that teacher observation, you know, the, the report from the student, if they're able to articulate you know, I'm really having trouble with X, Y, and Z, or um, I find this type of print um, easier to read than that type of print, or I'm really having difficulty organizing my, my thoughts this way. Like, just because it's not standardized doesn't make observation and, and just experience a valid assessment or, you know, incredibly important and helpful data. Mm -hmm. um, and so even if you don't, you're not doing these standardized assessments, that doesn't mean that you can't assess. Yep. 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 Oh, I like that a lot. That's a really good point. Yep. You might not be entering something in your grade book about it. It might not right. add up to a hundred percent or something, but you still are gathering information um, that you can use to make decisions and doing that in informal ways or in new ways might be sort of that important equivalent of creativity and flexibility um, sure. that's needed right now. Oh, that's such a great point. Tests are not the only thing we can use to answer right. test questions. Yeah. You know, what's kind of the overall feeling of, of how they're doing and why. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't necessarily need, um, you know, standard scores to provide that. Right, right. It reminds me of how, um, you know, we put a lot of time and effort and resources into producing, for example, a report card, and then a lot of time and effort and resources into producing an opportunity for conversation about that report card um, mm -hmm. of parent-teacher conferences, um, because the there is some sense somewhere that there's um, incredible value in the conversation part, and that may or may not um, fully engage or revolve around the actual grades on that report card. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, uh, and, and those things are potentially possible and sometimes even more possible now than they would have been when somebody had to schedule a time to take off of work to come down to the school to have a parent-teacher conference. So being able to interact with parents, at least for the, the educators I've been in touch with who are working more with elementary school students, They've had more opportunities to interact with caregivers in the last few weeks than they have in the last few years. Yeah. Um, not for a sit-down conference or something, but um, but just you know, seeing them saying hello, knowing their faces and their names, it's so much easier uh, now than in general. And so um, we can get some of the, if the whole point of producing some of this testing information was to launch conversations, um, we can cut right to the conversation at some point in, in some cases. Uh, yeah. which is kind of good news, a, a little bit more efficiently than usual. Beautiful. The only other thing I wanted to return to as I was like scratching furious notes over here, um, mm -hmm. I think I, I don't, I can't actually read all of the notes that I scratched. So what I think I wrote down was mediated comfort. And I think it had something to do with, um, you were describing how important it is to begin by uh, building some rapport 
with mm -hmm. whoever you were working with. And that really echoes some of the things that came out in earlier episodes about beginning online and teaching that really your first goal should just be um, connection and relationship building or repair because um, especially younger kids that don't have a great idea about what's going on uh, want to see your familiar face and know that you're still there and you still care about them you didn't disappear because of anything that they did right. um, and even older kids just you know hi familiar face nice to see you um, but that comfort establishing a sense of comfort in the session online is mediated by the digital tools um, and so what are some things that you do uh, when you notice that someone really isn't at ease with the uh, with the setup um, short of reaching through the screen and adjusting it for them or helping with the tech stuff do you um, have any tips or tricks for us to help those who don't seem at ease uh, to find their ease in um, uh, when you're working with them online and I think you know the first part of it is you know what are the cues that you're receiving that tell you that the student is not at ease mm -hmm. um, and then depending on their age and their ability to articulate it um, you can always ask the student you know you seem like you're you're fidgeting or, or hesitating is, is something going on or I you know, I think with any digital platform, you need the student to be able to express what their experience is, um, have an opportunity to ask questions and to seek clarification. You don't want the whole enterprise to be messed up because there's some um, miscommunication or misunderstanding of what the assessment is. But mm -hmm. um, I think making sure that you have an open line of communication with the student. Um, you know, if that means starting just by, you know, small talk. Um, I know a lot of my students on the spectrum hate small talk, so I, I wouldn't necessarily do that, but I might ask them, you know, about their interests. A lot of them like to talk about their interests and showing an interest in their interest is a good way to build um, kind of that rapport and, and trust um, you know, showing that you have an interest, but but really also communicating. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Being transparent, showing that you're not taking this, you know, holier than thou uh, approach to testing, where I'm the, you know, I'm the adult, I'm the expert. You need to do what I say because that's our relationship. I'm older and have more experience, and so you listen without question, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like. We're in this together. This is why we're doing this. Do you have any questions? Is there anything you know I can do to make this um, more comfortable for you? Uh, just, just being human as opposed mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. um, this kind of cog in in a machine that the student has no idea why they're a part of. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think transparency and and open communication. Um, how to achieve that's going to be dependent on, you know, the age and the um, ability of the student to, to kind of engage in that process. So it's, um, I think open communication and transparency as much as possible is kind of the general um, approach that I would take. How to achieve those things is going to be dependent on uh, who you are, who the student mm -hmm. is, and what the relationship between the two of you looks like. Yeah, I really appreciate hearing that and hearing the example specifically about um, 
students that don't love small talk because I don't like I can't get behind the cutesy stuff and so I have yeah. I have the cognitive understanding that like it's important to begin by um, uh, building rapport and I like mm. my immediate response is to like, or just to roll my eyes like the beginning of, of meetings or conferences when people are like we're going to now have an icebreaker to build relationship even you know shaking hands just I don't want to do it I don't I don't I'm I'm totally uninterested yeah to the point of feeling uncomfortable and so <laughs> um, if I think that my my it's my responsibility to put somebody else at ease um, I immediately assume that that has something to do with um, small talk to yeah. something cutesy or something like, you know, asking them about their day and I don't know and I don't have time and I don't, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So I really like the idea that the ease and the showing interest isn't about like chit chat. It is about um, indicating that you've heard them when they've expressed an interest in something. And so you can turn to it, but it's mostly about making sure they understand what you're doing and not doing and what's up, what is, what is ahead and how long it might take. And yeah. I think the, um, the thing that people are telling me that they miss a lot from being around their students in person, um, is being able to see kind of their, see what they see. Um, and so, uh, some folks have gotten into the habit of asking, what do you, instead of, can you see me or like, can you hear me? Um, because just socially we want to say yes. And also you can, but I don't know how you're seeing and hearing me. Are you seeing me, but your but my window is covered by 16 other tabs or so, um, uh, we've started doing things at, like asking, what do you see on your screen right now? And, um, uh, how comfortable is your chair and not how comfortable is your chair because that's not an easy question for an for an itty bitty to answer but like can both your feet reach the floor what do you feel under your feet you know those little things to uh help me imagine that you are seated comfortably and can see what i think you can see right <laughs> which is uh which is part of the thing too so i really appreciate the idea that like rapport isn't just touchy feelies because that drives me nuts yes um, but that it is a, a much more um a concrete thing and that is achievable in a variety of ways and that depends and you don't have to be somebody who's a really good performer to um to make that happen yeah and i, I think just paying attention like yeah like the example you gave before about the the student with a, a cat on their lap i've had you know in my meetings the last three weeks numerous pets in the screen and that's intentional like the students have their pets there for a reason. And so um, that's a cue to pick up on. Or if they have, if they're dressed in a certain way that you haven't normally seen them dress a specific t-shirt, for example, like that's something to pay attention to. And, and that's, you know, in, in those cases, the students are, are giving you the opportunity or giving you the in. To, to start a conversation or to develop rapport or to ask questions. And then um, whether you attend to those cues or not could be the difference between um, a really good rapport and a not so great rapport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love the idea that uh, kids are giving you an in. We talk all about like social identity kits and reading them. Um, that they that they like leave a trail of breadcrumbs that you kind of have that and to thank them for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For the most part, kids, even even you know, the 
the kids I work with on the on the spectrum who you know stereotypically you know don't want those social connections necessarily mm -hmm. you know it's 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 not true they they do they just don't know necessarily the the best way to go about it but um yeah those 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 cues are are intentional and um worth picking up on okay i want to thank josh for this incredible conversation it's left me a lot to think about i hope it has you too and that's it for this chat you can find our guest contact information by navigating from our website reading.education.ucon.edu and clicking on podcast we'll also have a transcript of this conversation and links to some of the tools and ideas mentioned here don't forget to like, subscribe, download, share, and check back here next week for a new series of podcasts from your Yukon Literacy Fellows. Thanks for listening.